If you want a title for today's message, I've called it A Moment That Changed Everything. Last week we looked at Mark chapter 6, verses 53 through 56, and we saw how that was in many ways a concluding section, a concluding summary of the way the Gospel of Mark works out. So from chapters 1 through 6, he's banging on three nails all the time. He's talking about the patience of God, talking about the compassion of God and the authority of God, and he really brings that to a crescendo in those summary verses by helping us see what's been on the table all along. And I trust we've got that. And yet as we go into chapter 7, the mood and the tone of Mark's gospel completely changes. It's real different in this section, and it continues to be real different as we move forward as well. So we're going to read chapter 7, verses 1 through to 13. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of the cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we gather around this moment that changes everything. Lord, did you open our eyes to what's being said here and to what it means for us today? Lord, did we see you as King of kings and Lord of lords stepping into this situation full of truth and full of grace? And Lord, would it cause us to marvel at you and to want to be like you? Open our eyes, Lord. Amen. You know, there are some moments in our, in our lives where something is said or something is done that changes everything. Maybe for us, maybe for other people, but moments where something is said or something is done that changes everything. On the 18th of April, 1521, at the Diet of Worms in Germany, Martin Luther had one of these moments. 
See, for years, Martin Luther had been beating himself up over trying to work out, how can I be righteous? How can I be accepted by God? How can I behave and live in such a way that I'm declared holy so that I can be acceptable before the Lord? So he was a pious man. He tried everything he could to put himself in a position where he thought he would be acceptable to God, and yet he could never do it. He was always aware of areas in his life where he's blowing it, things that he should do that he didn't, things that he shouldn't do that he knew he did. And so he'd beat himself up over it all the time. And then one night, as he read through the scriptures, in particular Romans chapter 3, the doctrines of grace came fully alive in his heart. As he read, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And as he continued to read that that righteousness comes from faith in Jesus Christ, the doctrines of grace came alive to him as he realized it's not about me. It's all about him. It's not about me trying to be righteous that makes me acceptable before the Lord. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed to my life that makes me acceptable before the Lord. It completely changed his life. It was a moment that changed his life once and for all. And so he began to preach in his local church the doctrines of grace. He began to preach that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not about the Pope. It's not about indulgences. It's not about what we do. It's all about what Jesus Christ has done in our place. And he famously then stamps his 95-part thesis on the church doors of the Wittenberg local church where he attended A 95-part thesis standing against the Pope, standing against indulgences, standing against anything that understood wrongly that we were the ones making ourselves righteous. It's where the Reformation really began. But on the 18th of April, 1521, he finds himself hauled before the Diet of Worms, literally the assembly in Worms of the Holy Roman Empire, to be tried for heresy. Often... This would mean losing your life. They would kill you. So he was tried by a man called Eck on behalf of the Roman Empire. And as they start to question Martin Luther about what he now believes, believing this to be heresy, this is what he says. He says, unless I am refuted and convicted by testimonies of the Scriptures or by clear arguments, since I believe in neither the Pope or the councils alone, it being evident that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am conquered by the Holy Scriptures quoted by me, and my conscience is bound by the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to do anything against conscience. That's brave as they stand before this great assembly, being accused of heresy. And so Eck presses in more. What on earth do you mean about the Pope? What do you mean about these contradictions? This is ridiculous. You're teaching things that are wrong, that are heretical. And he goes on and on and on. And Martin Luther, when he can stand no more, interrupts him and says, Listen, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So may God help me. Amen. William Barclay says, This is the trial that led to the birth of the modern world. And so it did. 
The Protestant Reformation came from this. The Holy Roman Empire began to change over time, and church and state started to become separate. And through Martin Luther's stand, ordained by God, the church started to change as the Protestant Reformation started to take place, and that changed the culture, most of the cultures around the world. This is a moment and a conflict that would change the world. And yet that moment on the 18th of April, 1521, that conflict that took place is only a dim reflection at best of the conflict and moment that we have displayed for us here in Mark chapter 7. Because this moment and this conflict, in a universal way, changes everything. See, it would appear, as soon as you gather around Mark chapter 7, it would appear that they are back. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're back. And their opposition to Jesus has only heightened. It has escalated to even larger proportions than it was before. You see, we, we last heard of the Pharisees and the scribes way back in Mark chapter 3, which you can turn to. We can have a brief look there. So there have been three or four chapters where they haven't appeared for some time. And yet we have been introduced to the Pharisees. We have been introduced to their hatred towards Jesus all the way back in chapter 3. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we read again, He entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they, meaning the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The Pharisees are there, gathered around Jesus to watch him, to accuse him. They hate him. They hate his popularity. They hate everything he stands for. They want ultimately to see him removed from all ministry, ideally killed. And so they are waiting and watching. And they're aware there are going to be people here that will need healing. But it's the Sabbath. You shouldn't be healing people on the Sabbath. So let's watch. Or Jesus, verse 3, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked round at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus is helping him see, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath wasn't meant to be a burden on men. The Sabbath was meant to be a day to bless men. You hold to the tradition of the elders, this extracurricular law that isn't in the Bible, that isn't God's Word. So what are we meant to be doing on the Sabbath, apart from blessing people? And so he heals this man, and the Pharisees, it says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Pharisees want him gone. They hate him. They hate everything he stands for and everything he is. And we see the scribes in chapter 3, verse 22 through to verse 30. The scribes are, in effect, the big boys of the day. They're the heavyweight theologians of the day. They have the authority and the power of Jerusalem behind themselves. And it would appear that this official delegate from the scribes of Jerusalem, have come down to see Jesus in chapter 3, not to have a chat with him, not to hear his teaching, not to see what he does, not even to ask him more about who he is, but to accuse him and give their assessment of him in order to discredit him. 
And so they say, verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, this is out loud to the crowd, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. That's their assessment of Jesus. He's not who he says he is. This man is possessed. This man is in allegiance with Satan himself. And Jesus goes on to help them see this is ludicrous. Satan divided against Satan. Satan casting out Satan. I'm I'm in allegiance with Satan. I'm not possessed by Satan. I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. And so even now I'm binding the strong man. I'm removing Satan from people. Things are changing because I am he. I'm the serpent crusher that's come on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And the scribes hate him. They want him killed too. And it would appear in chapter 7, then having had some time without the scribes and Pharisees mentioned, it would appear that they are back. And they want to do all they can to discredit Jesus. Robert Stein in his commentary says this about this moment. He says, The listing of both groups, Pharisees and scribes, gathering together against Jesus in chapter 7 is especially sinister. In this opening scene, there really is a contrast. Mark drew our attention previously in chapter 6, verses 53 to 56, to the popularity of Jesus, the wild popularity of Jesus among the masses. That will now stand in stark contrast to the hostility of the Pharisees and scribes that we will encounter in chapters 7, verses 1 through 13. And so it will. The tension between Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes is palpable. If you were here in the crowd, you would be stepping away. Because these guys are going at it. Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, scribes and Pharisees, heavyweights of the day, toe to toe. The tension in the air is palpable and the ensuing confrontation and conflict is sharp, it is direct, and it is intense. And this would be a defining moment for Jesus. It all changes from this point on. And this would accordingly be a defining moment for the world and indeed us as well. So I have two points this morning. Number one, the story. And number two, what it all means. What does it mean? Why is Mark putting it here? Well, we'll see that, I trust, by the end. But first of all, let's look at the story. And the story really is in two parts. The charge of the Pharisees and scribes, which is verses 1 through 5. And then the Savior's indicting response, which is verses 6 through 13. So let's look first at the charge of the Pharisees and scribes. And let's read verses 1 and 2 again. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jesus... They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. I mean, imagine the scene. The scribes and the Pharisees, they are looking on at Jesus. They are looking on at his disciples. They want to catch them out. And Mark provides, once again, vivid details to help us get in on the story. And you can just imagine The evil elation in the look of the Pharisees and the scribes' eyes as they see, whoa, check it out. 
his disciples are eating, they didn't wash their hands. That's the tradition of the elders. This is disgraceful. How could they do this? Imagine the evil elation in their eyes as they begin to observe disciples who are about to eat a meal without ceremonially washing their hands. See, the practice of ceremonial washing before eating carried huge religious significance for the Jewish leaders of the day. To not wash one's hands was to eat with defiled hands. And so washing of hands to the Jews wasn't about hygiene. It wasn't about, oh, germs, don't like them, let's wash our hands. It had nothing to do with germs. They're not bothered about germs. It has to do with religious tradition. Washing your hands before you ate was holiness to them. Their issue here was the matter of distinction between being clean and unclean and maintaining their distinctiveness as holy as the people of God. And you have to remember, a lot of Mark's readers, they're not Jewish. They're not Jewish like us. They are Gentiles, and so they wouldn't have had a clue like we don't have a clue about the practice and its significance. So verses 3 and 4, he takes people like me and you into the story more to explain to us what's going on here, what the issue is. Says verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. (laughs) These guys love to wash. And it's all about carrying forward the tradition of the elders. The big issue here. The Pharisees and the scribes is the issue of being clean, being set apart as the people of God and following the tradition of the elders. See, there was a law, which we all know about. It's what we read about, the law of Moses. But the tradition of the elders was to build another law around that law, a fence around it, and then ideally another fence around that as well. And it was probably well-intentioned that, okay, well, if we're not allowed to do this, okay, well, let's not make sure we're not allowed to do this instead so that we'll never do this. The problem is the very fence in Jewish tradition and Phariseeism became law as well. You should be doing those things as well. And to not do them is surely wrong. It's surely sinning against the Lord. And this tradition of washing hands was that fence. It was a ring around it. It wasn't written by God that you can't eat without washing your hands. It was the tradition of the elders. But these Pharisees held that tradition as if it was God's word itself. And so as far as they're concerned, how dare your disciples, who represent you, who you're training, begin to disrespect the tradition of the elders and start to eat without washing their hands. And you can only imagine the glee in their eyes as they look at Jesus in absolute self-righteousness in verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? That is said in absolute disdain. How dare they? How dare these men that represent you So you have to understand the Pharisees and the scribes aren't that bothered about the disciples. They're not too worried about them not washing their hands. Not really. Their issue is they want to get Jesus. 
So if you're their rabbi, how dare you allow your disciples to disrespect the traditions? If they're doing that, then how many other things are you disrespecting? They're trying to gather people around to help them see this man is discredited. He doesn't follow our laws. He doesn't follow what we're about. He's not even a Jew practicing in the way he should before the Lord. Look at him. That's their issue. They want to discredit Jesus. They are seeking to challenge and accuse and discredit Jesus. But I don't think they had a category for Jesus' response. They were not expecting what comes next. Because Jesus doesn't like settle down and move into the corner. He steps right up and looks at them in their eyes and then says this, which is the Savior's indicting response. See, what should become immediately obvious as we look at his response is that Jesus doesn't actually answer their question. He's not bothered about that question. He's worried about the heart behind the question. He wants to get to the bottom of what are you on about? What are you trying to do? So he will address the issue of clean and unclean in verses 14 through 23, which is what we'll look at in a couple of weeks' time. But before that, he wants to call the Pharisees and scribes out. He wants to call them to account. They have been boldly and authoritatively standing on the tradition of the elders, and they're making accusations against Jesus according to the tradition of the elders. So he is now going to call them out and call them to account, not towards the tradition of the elders, but the word of God. He's not stepping back. He's stepping in. And so this is what he says. Verse 6 and 7. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. (laughs) They hadn't expected that. He is going toe-to-toe with them. You want to have a go at me? I've got some things to say to you. His indictment of them is absolutely scathing. For Jesus to apply Isaiah's prophecy, which is what is written there, would have been immediately offensive to them as scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees are the religious elite of the day. When they walk around, it's as if they are floating into the room. This is the religious elite. Everybody respects them in the culture. You guys are knowledgeable. You're wise. You keep yourself holy and set apart before the Lord. They are admired as soon as they come into the synagogue. People would want to stand to their feet because these are the Pharisees and the scribes. Not so with Jesus. I'll tell you who you are. You're hypocrites. Could you imagine the crowd? Oh, did he just say hypocrite? Yep. Yeah, you're hypocrites. It's exactly what you are. You're hypocrites that Isaiah talks about. And when he talked about that, he was talking about you. You're hypocrites because your hearts are far from the Lord. Your worship is in vain. You say you honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from the Lord. And you are hypocrites because your teachings are not from God, but of men. Your teachings aren't built on this word that we stand on. 
No, your teachings are the teachings of men. And you're hypocrites. Everything you stand for is a disgrace to me. You would have been able to cut the air with a knife as this is going on. These are the two heavyweights of the day going toe to toe. And so Jesus, in a desire to help them see and to help the crowds around understand why he's calling them a hypocrite, explains to them and expands what he's on about by illustrating to them how they are misusing the word of God. So he says this in verse 9, And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. What an introduction. That's intense. Edmund Hybert, in his commentary, says this was not a searching question as to the conscience of his opponents, but a shattering verdict on their practice. He's not questioning them here. He's telling them off here. How dare you? And then he goes on to give the illustration, verse 10. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Jesus begins deliberately by referencing Moses. The Pharisees and the scribes have boldly and authoritatively been referencing the tradition of the elders. So Jesus begins by referencing Isaiah and now Moses. And he turns them to the fifth commandment. The commandment to honor your father and your mother. A commandment which is built on value and splendor and was held with such value and importance in ancient Israel that to, to disregard your parents was punishable by death. This was a massive issue. And every Jew knew it. Everybody knew this was God's word and important to God's word. In verse 11, But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. What, what's that about? <laughs> uh, what is he trying to say? We have to understand the mind of a Jew to understand what he's saying there. She to start off with, there is a very deliberate, intentional, sharp contrast between verses 11 and verses 10. For Moses said, verse 10, Namely, God says, God says through Moses, verse 10, power and authority. Verse 11, but you say, this is just you. Traditions of men. Let me give you an illustration of how you operate as Pharisees and scribes, which is a disgrace. God says, but you say. It was well understood in this tradition that an appropriate way for a child to honor their father and mother, particularly as they became older, Without a welfare system, became dependent on their family. It was understood that a way a child would care for their parents is by caring for them financially as well. Looking after them with possessions and finances to care for them. And yet the tradition of the elders, this is how warped it is. The tradition of the elders allowed for a son to dedicate by vow money and possessions to God and thus restrict that money and possessions to be able to give in to the parents. It was designed that way. So I could see my parents getting old, aware that they're in need, 
not really like them. So, hey, I'm going to declare my property Corbin. It's offered to God. And it was such a twisted system. It didn't mean that you had to give it to the temple or anything else, but it meant you had to rightfully use it for God. So, hey, I just need a bigger house so I can be hospitable to more and more people. I'm called by God to do that. So I'm declaring everything I own as Corbin. What can I do? It's a tradition of man, tradition of the elders, something that they taught openly to everybody that that's what they could do. William Lane, in his commentary, says, In the hypothetical situation proposed by Jesus, if the son declared his property Corbin to his parents, he neither promised it to the temple nor prohibited its use to himself. But he legally excluded his parents from the right of benefit. And should the son regret his action and seek to alleviate the harsh vow which would deprive his parents of all the help they might normally expect from him, he would be told by the scribes that his vow was valid and must be honored. Is that not a disgrace? The tradition of the elders was a total disgrace. It gave room for the depravity of the human heart. If a child didn't like their parents, if a son didn't like his mum and dad, he would just declare everything Corbin, offered to God. What can I do? And if that child then learned to regret that and repent of that, he would go to the Pharisees or the scribes and he'd say, listen, I made a massive mistake. It was wrong what I did. It was irrational. I need to love my mum and dad. I need to honour them for the glory of the Lord. Verse 12. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Because when that kid realises this is totally wrong before the Lord, and they go and speak to the scribes and Pharisees and explain, I was, I was wrong, I regret what I did, I need to care for my mum and dad, they would tell that individual, your vow before the Lord is valid. You must give your parents nothing. Well, Jesus knew full well that this tradition was a disgrace. So he says in verse 13, Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. He's condemning them. Your traditions of the elders have trumped the very word of God. And you willfully and openly do not respond to the word of God. You hang on to your traditions. And here's an illustration of it. Corbin, guys, it's pathetic. You allow room for all of this so that a young man can't even honor their father and mother anymore. And you're telling them, well, it's a vow to God. What can you do? He's condemning them for their actions. And just when they think it can't get any worse, he says, and many such things you do. This is just an example, one illustration. But there are hundreds of illustrations where their traditions of the elders trump the very word of God and they hang on to it as if it is the word of God, which it is not. But in responding to the tradition of the elders, people can't actually stand clear to the word of God at all. So, you are hypocrites. You say you love God, you don't. You love your traditions. You say you honor the Lord. Yeah, you honor him with your lips. But your hearts are far from the Lord. And so when they think 
They have trapped him because the disciples aren't washing their hands properly. He steps right up and gets right into their face and tells them, you're hypocrites. This is a dramatic and defining moment. It's the largest and most detailed account of an interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes anywhere in the gospel. And it's intense. It is full on. And we'll discover in a few weeks, the full on carries on. There's more that he's going to say to them. But this is without doubt a moment that would change everything. So what does it all mean? Which is my second point. What does it all mean? What is it that Mark wants us to learn from this defining moment? What is it that Mark wants us to eagerly see? Why is it the longest text anywhere in this gospel where we see Jesus opposing the Pharisees and the scribes? Why is he giving it in such detail for us? What does he want us to see? No word is wasted. No paragraph is wasted. He wants us to see something. And I think he wants us to see two things. I think there's two things that he wants us to see as his disciples today about Jesus and about what is really taking place here. And here's the first. I think he wants us to see, number one, how Jesus stands on the Word of God. Jesus isn't interested in the traditions of men. He's interested in this Word. This is what my Father says, not what you're saying. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Isn't that profound? All Scripture is God-breathed. All of this is breathed out by God. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Everything we need, absolutely everything we need, is in this book. It's right before our eyes. And oh, how you see Jesus standing on it in this text, don't you? The Pharisees and the scribes, they're seeking to add to Scripture. And he's calling them out on it. That's the tradition of the elders. That is not what it says in my book. That is not what the Father says. That's your traditions adding to things, and that's fine. But do not stand on them like you do the Word of God. And do not take away from the Word of God, because we are called to honor our father and mother. And you're not doing this. You're not teaching this. You're adding loopholes in so that people don't have to do it properly. Jesus is passionate, just like Luther. This is a here-I-stand moment for Jesus. You want to have a got me? You can have a got me personally. But do not have a go at the word of God, because I will oppose you in that. These are my Father's words. All Scripture is God-breathed. This is all the world is going to need right here. So do not reject this word, and I will stand toe-to-toe with you when you do that. Now, I think this is an astounding moment as you examine what Jesus is doing. And I think herein lies a lesson for us as well. Given to us by Mark, I think. To show us how by God's grace, we're to stand on God's word as well. 
And my friends, I think we need to hear that lesson and learn that lesson. Because I think I know personally in my life, and I'm sure it's the same for you, there are many, many temptations that can cause us not to want to stand on this word. Given the nature of indwelling sin in our lives, the presence and nature of it, there will be things that you and I will read in this Bible where we're like, oh, don't think I like that. I'll pretend that's cultural. It's just too hard. You know, if I really follow that, I'm going to look like an absolute idiot. So we're tempted to soften the word, take things out, rip pages out, avoid sections, black them out. We would never actually black them out, but in our minds we do. Let's just move away from that. This is just too hard. This is too complicated. I think the stuff that you ladies are going through in Titus 2, I'm utterly thrilled that we are a church that is teaching complementarity well. And I think the ladies are doing an outstanding job in serving you. But if you hold to that, which I believe is throughout God's word and important to God's word, it is countercultural, And there will often be something in your heart that will go, I don't like that, I don't like that. That's indwelling sin. If you want to know where that comes from, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's part of the curse. And then we live in a culture that also screams at us, this isn't true. This is dated. This was written miles away, 2,000 years ago. What does this have to do with us? And culture says things that actually to our minds sound right. You're like, that sounds sweet. I think I'll follow that. Sounds like it's going to be a great life if I do that. Totally cultural. And the culture stands against the word, but our temptation is to follow the culture and say, did it really say that? And then we have Satan and his demons in our ear saying exactly that. Does it really say that? Did he really mean that? It's exactly what he was saying to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? Maybe that's just something that these guys would hold on to years ago, not you. This is too hard. Hey, just apply grace to your life. It's all by grace, right? You don't have to follow this stuff. I mean, you'll get there. Given the nature of indwelling sin and culture and the evil one, there will be many temptations that we will all face not to stand on the word of God. But my appeal to you from Mark chapter 7 is that we need to be like Jesus. And we need to be a people of God that are willing to say, Here I stand. So help me God. Amen. This is true. So I'm standing on it for the glory of the Lord. And I know that's going to get me beaten up from culture. I know Satan's going to be in my ear saying, you are an idiot. I know there's going to be indwelling sin in my heart that's going to fight this because I want to be popular and liked. And I want my own way on things. But we need to be like Luther saying, here I stand. Because Luther was like Jesus. Here I stand. I will not let anybody add to Scripture. And I will not let anybody take away from Scripture. No doubt how we feel about what is being taught. Truth is truth. You know, I'd love it. It would look really weird. But I'd love it if some way we could just have a Bible whenever we gather, like right there. Because I think one of the most important lessons we need to understand as a church is we sit under this word. It isn't about what Dave thinks. It isn't about what the pastoral team thinks. It isn't about what Sovereign Grace thinks. You can ignore all those things. But it is about what the Word thinks. We need to wrestle with the Word. Jesus Christ stood and lived his life under the Word. So must 
we? Here we stand. When we gather as Christians, as a church, when we gather in our life groups, when we gather as married couples, when we gather with friends, when we live our lives before the Lord, we constantly sit under this word. So we need to know it and embrace it and stand on it for the glory of God. I think Mark wants us to see how Jesus stands on the word. The lessons of Mark haven't finished. He's still taking us to school, just like he was taken to school by Jesus himself, showing us this is what it means to be a disciple. See the way he stands on God's word? You need to do that. And number two, he also wants us to see, I believe, how Jesus would come to die. See, this is a sobering and defining moment. This confrontation is without doubt a defining moment because this scathing indictment from Jesus towards the scribes and the Pharisees would change everything. Because humanly speaking, this moment would bring about the cross. Humanly speaking, this moment would be the very thing that would bring about his death. Therein, I believe, is the second thing that Mark so eagerly wants us to see. Namely, the escalating hostility from the Jewish leaders towards Jesus, which, humanly speaking, will lead to his death. See, Jesus ultimately would be crucified by these leaders. Those who honor God with their lips, but whose hearts are far from him. People who are unmoved and unaffected when they see Jesus forgiving people, when they see Jesus healing people, when they see Jesus healing a leper and a paralytic, a man with a withered hand, unmoved when they see Jesus feeding the 5,000, unmoved when they see Jesus casting out demons and setting people free from oppression and possession, unmoved by any of that, and yet they see a group of disciples not washing their hands. And that completely ticks them off. How dare they do that? Mark even now is pointing us to the reality that Jesus is innocent. What Jesus is doing is sitting under this word. But these men are corrupt. And humanly speaking, this would lead to his death. See, humanly speaking, this is the moment that changes everything. And yet, my friends, I want to encourage you in context, in Mark chapter 7, on the back of Mark 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. I think Mark also wants us to see, albeit subtle, who lies at the bottom of it all. Because we have just had placarded before our eyes for six chapters the authority of Jesus Christ. The one who can stand on water. The one who can say to a storm to stop. The one who can realize what people are thinking and what they're expressing, even when he can't hear their voices and can know exactly what to do. The one who can see in the dark his disciples struggling in a storm and know exactly where they are and start to walk towards them. The one who can take 
Five loaves and two fish and turn them into thousands and thousands of loaves and fish to feed 5,000 people and then have baskets left over. Do not think for a moment then when we get to chapter 7 that he's walking into a trap unknowingly. He's in control all the time. He knows exactly what's going on. And he knows, humanly speaking, as he stands for the word of God, humanly speaking, this will lead to his death from the Pharisees and the scribes. But he does it anyway. Why? Because that's why he came. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, For no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus was smarter than anybody that ever lived. And knowing all things, even now he is laying his life down. He's not walking into things by accident, but deliberately he is heading towards the cross, standing against the Pharisees and the scribes, knowing that humanly speaking, this will see him crucified. My friends, this is a moment that changed everything. A defining moment that changed everything for Jesus. Because here on in, a year's time from now, he'll be on a cross. And this is a moment then in his sovereignty and grace that changed everything for us. He was securing that he would indeed be killed. Making it possible for him to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a defining moment, and so would we gaze at it? And would what we see cause us to worship him all the more? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that as we gather around your word, there's nothing out of place. There's no word or line, or paragraph that has just been accidentally written in, or just written in for novelty, or to puff the story up a bit. Every word is God-breathed. Every word has ultimately been written by you through human hands. Our Lord, as we gather then around this sharp and intense confrontation, oh Lord, would we worship you all the more? as we see you standing in courage and strength and authority against the scribes of Pharisees, standing for the word of God. Oh, Lord, would that invoke courage in our own hearts to follow you like you follow the Father? And Lord, as we realize that you are at the bottom of it all, that even now you are walking towards Calvary, Lord, that causes us to delight and worship in you all the more. Because you are an incredible king. So may we behold you. And may we delight in you. All for your glory.